Hello! How are you? I hope you've been doing well. Thank you for being so patient with me while I have been on a short hiatus as I worked through finals week, released some episodes for my other group podcast, Divided, and developed a plan for this one. Welcome to, if you're a new listener, to the Fireside Broadcast, a podcast where I, your host, Catherine Grady, explore anything and everything, issues serious to silly, in a safe, relaxing atmosphere by my fireplace while you start your day. Wherever you are, thank you for tuning in, and I'm so excited to dive into the juicy details of what the heck our feathered friends are up to and how you can make a bird feeder out of a milk carton, why you should even care about birds in the first place, chickens are a dinosaur's long-lost cousin, and there was a snowy arctic owl in Central Park and Seattle. Keep listening for more. Okay, so this episode may seem random. I've previously discussed more societal issues like racism and the effects of COVID on people. So why am I getting into birds? Well, this is a podcast where, as I said, I talk about anything and everything. And as springtime is approaching, I wanted to give you all a heads up about one of my favorite extracurricular interests. How have birds been affected by COVID? Forbes released an article saying that the coronavirus debating is if it's good or bad for birds. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed a lot of different species at my bird feeders that I usually didn't see. I've also been stuck at home, so maybe that's a part of it. But they said that a recent study of wild sparrows living in San Francisco found that they responded to reduction in traffic noise by singing softer, more elaborate songs, and their resulting vocal virtuosity made them more appealing to females, therefore more likely to have reproduced. While the city was so loud, they were singing really loudly, said a professional ornithologist. Like in a crowded pub, the sparrows were shouting over the background noise, and it was harder for them to communicate and therefore access each other and reproduce. So this is just on sparrows, but it makes sense. They also described how the less traffic and less pollution on the sparrows breeding territories during the months of April and May significantly dropped because of COVID. Many other birds experienced this as well. And the sparrows also sang with more elaborate songs and expanded vocal ranges and overall performance. What did the sparrows think of the COVID-19 songs? Were they responding as normally as they would to intruders during the lockdown or something else? Well, the original song changes occurred over decades, whereas sparrows born during lockdown will experience a vastly different soundscape when they are raising their own families to the following year. But the study also shows how quickly some birds can adapt to rapidly changing environments and adapt their behaviors. And this is the key point that I'll get into along with the snowy owls later on, is the reduction in traffic, human activity, noise, and 
chemical pollution allowed not only for sparrows, but so many bird species to thrive and expand into these areas that otherwise were being taken over by their human counterparts. Thank you, Forbes, for helping listeners understand that. To dive in a little more deeply, Science Magazine gives us some context because we've been in COVID for a year now. What did this anthropause mean for wildlife? The study that Science Magazine reported from University of California, Santa Cruz, and received funding from the National Science Foundation is one of the many examples of how scientists are trying to understand the impacts of what they are now calling the anthropause, the dramatic slowdown in human activity caused by the pandemic. As with the sparrows, there were quick changes and some surprises. The anthropause, quote, has prompted some researchers to quickly modifying existing studies, and the forests usually bustle with activity, including mountain bikers, hunters, and quarry trucks, but then all of a sudden, silence. So they installed a dozen additional automated cameras and, quote, won't forget this for her entire life. But the main question is what happens if tourists disappear, as this was one of the larger focuses on Science Magazine's article. As with the Yellowstone National Park, which is thriving with wildlife, what is happening to all those species that are specific to those regions? Last thing from Science Magazine, in the United States, researchers at the Institute of Bird Populations are focusing on bird behavior in Yosemite National Park and other federal parks in the western states. For years, the Institute has collected data on breeding bird diversity and abundance and also estimated noise levels within the parks, which fell silent when they closed to visitors for several weeks in March. It was quite astounding, says Chris Ray of the University of Colorado Boulder. This is fantastic data. So that completely contradicts Forbes' previous article. However, it does also align with the fact that sparrows were singing quieter because they had less noise disruption from humans, so they didn't have to work as hard to communicate and therefore reproduce. Now that we have a little back that birds have begun to generally sing quieter songs, but also with good reason because there's less population to strain their vocal cords to make them work as hard to communicate. And they also have territory that they can continue to expand and reproduce on now that humans are not intruding. Why would snowy owls come to Central Park? Because snowy owls are also experiencing a greater amount of territory to explore because of the quarantine for people. Why would an arctic owl that thrives in the tundra and plains and diverse wildlife that is likely expanding because of the reduction in tourists come to busy, noisy, polluted Central Park and Seattle? Well, first of all, I'll give you some context on a snowy owl. So Wikipedia describes a snowy owl is a large white owl of the true owl family. I didn't really know there was a false owl family. It sometimes is also referred to more infrequently as the polar or arctic owl, the white owl. They are native to region of the arctic north and the palearctic, breeding mostly in the tundra. 
and they have unique adaptations as being super white so they can blend in but then their babies are more brown so then they can camouflage in the grassier areas from predators they're one of the largest species of owl and as with their name they have snowy white plumage. Most owls sleep during the day and hunt at night, but the snowy owl is actually often active during the day, especially in summertime. They're a specialized and generalist hunter, which is kind of two contradicting sectors. So generalists generally <laughs> survive better in ecological turmoil um, than specialized species, which only are able to compete for one resource. So if these resources are likely prospering and thriving and growing more abundant because of less human activity preventing vegetation and general organism growth, why would either type of species reach out to the big city to get resources that are much more easily accessible in their expanded territory? Smithsonian Magazine gives us a clue. On their article, the snowy owl stops in Central Park for the first time since 1890. They describe it saying that on January 27th, a crowd gathered in New York's Central Park to see a rare spectacle, a snowy owl that made a pit stop at the North Meadow Base and softball diamonds. The last sighting of a snowy owl was in Manhattan was in 1890 when a large number of the charismatic white raptors flew unusually far south along the east coast all the way to Delaware but not since 1890 have they been seen. You can search up some videos but it's really cute. It's a female snowy owl huddled by the sand just watching the baseball. I guess maybe they got bored of their hometown too and needed to expand for a vacation. So as I said earlier, snowy owls spend most of the year in the Arctic tundra of northern Canada, but Smithsonian elaborates saying that they travel south each winter, but their normal winter range barely crosses the US-Canada border according to the National Audubon Society. When they travel south, they tend to look for habitats that resemble their tundra home. I mean, I guess a baseball field? But, like, <laughs> so that brings them to chilly shores, open fields, and airports. So about the snowy owl itself. According to Smithsonian's reports, several crows hopped around the owl defensively, possibly because snowy owls have been known to hunt and eat crows. A red-tailed hawk also tried to shoo the owl away. Red-tailed hawks are notoriously territorial and can feed on small mammals. We know that the owl was a female because of its thick black stripes, per the Times' description, but it was reported to move on. According to the American Museum of Natural History's Ornithology Collection manager Paul Sweet, to the New York Times. Other birds had clearly claimed the turf and they wouldn't let the owl rest. It wasn't being left alone and was quite bothered. So perhaps this owl was just passing through. Either way, what does this mean for birds during the pandemic? And what does it mean for our climate's current situation? CBS News points out that the snowy owl spotted in Central Park is an at-risk species thanks to climate change. 
While the owl spotting in the city was a rarity, CBS points out that without healthy lemming populations, the owls cannot thrive. When snowy owls migrate south for the winter, lemmings burrow under dense, insulated snow cover to reproduce. As the Arctic climate has warmed, winter snows in many areas have become less steep, more prone to icing, thaws, and refreezing, and as a consequence, lemming cycles that were once regular as a metronome for decades have collapsed or changed. Also, if you don't know what a lemming is, I had a health teacher that was like, don't be a lemming, because she didn't want us to like follow what everyone else does. But basically, it's an Arctic guinea pig and it is so yeah it's it's just an arctic guinea pig but it's a bit more dumb because they are commonly known to follow each other in herds off cliffs so um there's a little context some years may see higher lemming populations but that doesn't necessarily help the owls in the long run if the prosperous lemming season is not followed by another one of the same productivity the ecosystem can crash. So, although the reduction in human activity through traffic, noise, and chemical pollution has somewhat helped birds and allowed them to not have to work as hard to sing songs, communicate, and find resources, they are also still suffering up in the northern regions. One of the scientists on CBS's article says that irregularities in the lemming population contribute to the snowy owl's vulnerable status. This was definitely an irregular year, and vulnerable is just one step above endangered, and its population trend is described by the conservation organization as decreasing. Although the human activity reduction was drastic, it was temporary, and it is starting to come back, and is not enough to reduce the rapidly melting ice caps. So therefore, we can now recognize, instead of a 300,000 snowy owl population worldwide, there are unfortunately only more like 30k. As populations decline, this irregular behavior of a snowy owl in Central Park likely is a good indication that the whole system is under some serious stress and reaching out to other regions to find the resources they need or escape the hazards they are facing. Gizmodo also notes that Central Park's rare snowy owl visitor shows why we must conserve land everywhere. The climate crisis could alter the owls' lives in all parts of their range. Audubon Society research released in 2019 found that the owl's winter range in New York could degrade up to 26%. Their breeding range, only 7% of their habitat, would remain suitable if warming continues, but unfortunately temperatures are rising at three times the rate of the rest of the world in the Arctic. Rising spring temperatures in turn can melt out that snowpack earlier, creating drier conditions later in the year and preventing their resources like burrowing lemmings to thrive. The Seattle owl experienced a similar situation as the snowy owl spotted in Washington's major northwestern city, Seattle. Citizens found a snowy owl in the Queen Anne neighborhood of the city. This sighting, as well as the New York Central Park sighting, is, quote, a good reminder that conservation is not always about setting aside huge tracts of unhealthy 
untouched land, though that's obviously great. There's value in conserving marginal habitat in the owls and other birds range. That can mean creating more green space and planting more native plants in parks and prospects that are good for birds and us too. So with this kind of stressful information, how can you help birds, especially from the comfort of your own home while quarantined? The Happy Broadcast on Instagram released information from a study that says bird watching can produce as much serotonin as a pay rate. This has definitely been a depressing time, so get out there and watch some birds. WVTF, Virginia's public radio, says that there are many benefits of birding in a pandemic and I can agree. To support birds, you can plant organisms that can support insects that the birds will want to eat, native plants that grow fruit that the birds will love to enjoy, and if enough people do that, it can actually make a difference. WVTF.org says that feeding birds is better for human health as it distracts us from the many worries of our time. Audubon also writes that bird watching is a bright spot in the pandemic-stricken economy as sales are through the roof for feed supplies birdhouse builders, and small businesses helping people connect with the nature in their backyard. More than 158,000 Americans have passed from the pandemic, and more than 30 million small businesses are at risk of closing permanently. But even as the country slides further into recession, backyard birding is doing better than ever before. And although consumerism is generally bad for the environment, the increase in these sales is awesome as it helps attract birds from myriad different ecological niches. Few factors have led to the spike. For starters, birding supply companies are considered essential in most parts of the country, which has allowed them to stay open. Then there's the most obvious factor. People have been stuck at home and they're realizing that birding is easy to do while staying socially distant. Longtime backyard bird watchers have been filling their feeders more regularly, while people who are only just discovering birds are buying their first feeder sets, binoculars, and field guides. The weather may have helped too. Audubon continues continues, as a relatively mild winter probably allowed more birds to survive into spring, resulting in more visitors' backyards. So although this is bad for arctic animals like the snowy owl, it is somewhat helpful for your neighborhood's suburban birds. Now that we know all about the threats of continued environmental degradation despite the relative benefits of the pandemic-induced lockdown, how can you further help the avian realm while stuck at home? One of the things that I did yesterday was actually create a DIY bird feeding kit for my neighbors and dropped it off at their porch. I started to see a lot of different species now that I've been filling my birds more regularly, just as Audubon described. You really don't need all that much to help support your mental health and the physical health of your feathered friends right outside in your backyard. Some of my favorite resources are P. Allen Smith, you can find him on YouTube and on his website. He has a hilarious introductory song to his older videos and gives you a step-by-step -step tutorial on how to make suet, a fat and protein-packed energy treat for your winter birds. One of my favorite activities has been bird watching and feeding. There's no other satisfaction like watching a rare bird be attracted to and nourished by the habitat you created in your living space. There are three main concepts to understand as a backyard birder. First of all, you don't even need to have a backyard to attract and aid the bird populations in your area. 
You just need a well-maintained plant space for shelter and sustenance. The Humane Society describes it best, encouraging readers to create a humane refuge from toxic sprays and safety from mowers, quote. Something that many gardeners and birders are unaware of is the impact of fertilizers and plant manipulatives on the surrounding ecosystem. Allie Ward, one of my favorite podcasters, on her interview about the study of bees, details that, in regard to bees, on, quote, the scale of 0 to 10, what can the average person do? The biggest thing that bees need right now is food that's safe. Plant seeds that haven't been pre-treated with pesticides. Check the labels because a lot of them are pre-treated. Planting plants that haven't been pre-treated with systemic pesticides. That's one of the big issues. Quote. FYI, systemic pesticides are, quote, the kind of pesticides that live in the tissues of the plant instead of just being misted over the leaves, quote. She goes on to note that, quote, another thing native pollinators are struggling with is habitat. And as with bees, for birds, quote, you don't need to send invitations, just plant safe flowers. Put out some habitat and they'll be fine. Birds and insects are intricately connected. There are pollinating... F there are pollinating flyers like hummingbirds that need similar habitat to those of bees. Many birds also feed on insects and therefore need a habitat that provides a sufficient living space to foster them beyond the seed procured from a feeder. Make sure to grow native plants in your yard or living space if you want to attract birds that way. Audubon does a great job of detailing the perfect setup for a bird-friendly natural habitat. They suggest, quote, growing more native plants, plants that naturally occur in the area where you live. They're beautiful, they're already adapted to your precipitation and soil conditions, and they don't need artificial fertilizers or pesticides. Native plants provide nectar for hummingbirds, butterflies, and bees. They provide nourishing seeds and irresistible fruits for your feathered neighbors, and they offer places to nest and shelter from harm. They're also a critical part of the food chain. Native insects evolved to feed on native plants, and by and large, backyard birds raise their young on insects. Take the Carolina chickadee. A single clutch of four to six chicks will gobble up more than 9,000 caterpillars in 16 days between when they hatch and when they leave the nest. The key is to pick the right plants for your area, end quote. From purple cornflowers, milkweed, and honeysuckle to sunflowers and elderberry, Audubon has everything covered for your specific region. For more information, you can visit audubon.com or your local wildlife store. If you live somewhere where you can't grow plants, no worries, there are still two more steps. Bird feeders and apartment-friendly water sources should suffice. The next thing on your checklist would be water. You can set up a simple bird bath, hanging or statuesque, or a more elaborate water feature like a pond or creek. Providing water is just as important as the other factors described. I like to even use a clear pie dish and arrange some clean stones in the bottom and place it in the crook of a bush. This way, it's well hidden from predators and from viewers, but the birds can safely get a drink or a bath in the safety of the native plants you just grew. Finally, my favorite part. 
feeding the birds. You don't even need to purchase a bird feeder. There are so many tutorials on the internet of inexpensive and creative ways you can attract birds. You can even use an old milk carton. P. Allen Smith uses a teacup as a decorative feature that doubles as a bird feeder. If you want to branch out to actually purchasing factory produced bird supplies, I'd consider your local hardware or wildlife or pet store. They'll likely offer you the staple choices, a tube feeder, a hopper feeder, a suet feeder, a tray feeder, and a hummingbird feeder. A tube feeder is a hanging cylinder with small holes that are perfectly adapted to those of the smaller seed-eating birds like finches and chickadees. Hoppers are those house-shaped ones. These can usually hold a larger volume of seed, and because they have a wider perch, are able to host a more universal range of birds and accompanying feed. Suet feeders are small cages that hold a high-energy treat derived from beef fat or suet. These are most ideal for the winter months, and although they might sound gross, they're relatively clean and offer the key to attracting more secluded birds like woodpeckers. These ones are really fun, and you can even make your own suet out of peanut butter, lard, bird seed, and things from around the house. Tray feeders are just what they sound like. A tray, standing, placed on the ground, or hanging, that you can spread seeds or dried insects and fruits on to attract an even larger range of birds. But be careful, as I found with these feeders especially, if you don't have a squirrel baffle or squirrel repelling device, then pests will often want to get a share of your tasty treats offered. Finally, hummingbird feeders. These come in a variety of shapes and colors, but the most common and often most effective are red feeders. All you have to do is fill the feeder with a store-bought or handmade nectar substitute and you'll likely attract hummingbirds and other nectar feeders. My favorite recipe is a quarter cup granulated sugar to every one cup clean water. After I have boiled the solution to dissolve the water and allowed it to completely cool, I've filled it in my red hummingbird feeder. No need to actually add red food dye, that's just more chemicals, and the feeder's color should be enough. And voila, you have a hummingbird feeder. You can also even make one out of a red solo cup or other things from around the house. Again, just finding things from around your living space is ideal. It's likely eco-friendly and really fun. Get creative. Be careful of ants, especially in the summertime. You can find more information online about the best approaches to these problems if you come across them while attracting your feathered friends. One of the most important takeaways when providing for your backyard friends is to be consistent. The birds might come to depend on you, and especially in the winter months when birds like chickadees need to eat multiple times their body weight just to get through the freezing night, make sure to continue to clean and fill your feeders water sources, and nourish other elements of your habitat. Well, that's all for today. I hope you've learned a lot and been inspired to try a new activity that helps you and your wildlife counterparts to crush the boredom that is bound to ensue from the current lockdown. Please don't hesitate to send us your pictures of the birds and wildlife in your yard if you decide to try out any of these tactics. You can send them to us at gm at 889thebridge.org. That's gm at 889thebridge.org. I encourage you to please continue to practice eco-friendly habits as they help ensure a healthy planet for you and your backyard ecosystems for many years to come. Thanks for listening and stay cozy as always. My name is Katherine Grady and this is the Fireside Broadcast.